Hello and welcome to Healthline 3. I'm Terry Simmons. Today we're talking with Dr. Ghazi Zabari, Director of the John C. McDonald Regional Transplant Center of Willis-Knighton Health System. We'll be talking about organ donation and transplantation and taking your calls throughout the show. As a reminder, please make sure you're in a quiet room with the volume of your TV turned all the way down before making your call. And the number is 318-219-4569. Be sure to call us and get your answers to your health and wellness questions by talking directly with Dr. Zabari. He's here and you'll be on the air talking with the doctor. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Zabari. My, my pleasure and my honor to be with you today. It is our honor to talk to you. This is such thank an important topic. Absolutely. Yes. Too and many so people dying while they're waiting for these organs, so it is important. Yeah, let's start off with that because the information that you gave me that I was reviewing about the percentage of people who die while they're on the list is really astounding. Let's talk about that. You know, if you think of it that uh, right now, some 114,000 people are in different organ wait lists. And whenever I talk about organ donation, I always show Tiger Stadium. Yes. And I tell people, you have to understand, we are having more people waiting for this organ than this Tiger Stadium could hold. And fortunately, every day, some 17 to 18 people die while they are on wait list for organ transplantation. And, and that's just so sad and it's unbelievable. And the reason is that when I came back here in 93, literally we had about 60 to 65 patients on the list. None of them really lasted more than a year and a half. They got transplanted. Right now, we have over 450 patients on the list here in Shreveport. And at least they wait somewhere from four to seven years before they could get cataphytic organ transplant. And knowing that, those people on the list, at least 5 to 10 percent, will die in the wait list while they're waiting for these, uh, what you call it, life-saving organs. Unfortunately, too many of these organs are taken to heaven. We always say, don't take your organ to heaven. Heaven knows we need them here at home. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That is, I'm going to use that. Thank you. That is really, <laughs> yeah, that's a really good visual yeah, for that. Don't right. take them with you to heaven. That's and, right. And also, you um, told me about a statistic. At 65, patients age 65 years and older on dialysis are like, pro the, the prognosis for that is maybe five years? Well, you know, if, 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 you, if you look at all of those over age of 65, yeah. when you get them on the list for organ transplant, in five years, only one out of three would survive. Wow. In another word, 30 percent would be alive, the other would be dead, waiting for organs. And as we said, if they don't have living donor, likely than not, that 65-year-old guy may not get a kidney transplant before five years. Right. And not to mention, quality of life, fermentation, all get improved much, much better with organ transplantation. Right. Especially with end stage. Th that's right. Uh, the, the, we're talking right now about patients with end stage kidney disease. Yes. That's right. Goodness. And so, and when we talk about cadaveric, that means waiting for uh, someone who has died. That's, that's correct. That's not the living. Then that's what this waiting list are at. That, right? That, that, that's right. You know, we, we nationwide, we are really pushing hard yes. to find more living donors. And under ideal situation, living donors are better, especially if it came from family member. <coughs> These organs match your patient much better. Your body could accept a kidney from your son much better than somebody from me. 
and that's why that's one. The second thing is that you can do both donor and, and the recipient surgery side by side. I could take your kidney out with a robot, I'll hand it to my colleague next door to put it in your son or your husband or family member. Uh, that way you do not have to put them in, in ice. If you don't put them in ice, those kidney kick in from get-go. The longer it takes to transport, uh, transport the kidney from New York or Seattle down to Shreveport, the longer it takes for it to kick in and exactly. develop what we call it ATN, acute tibular necrosis or delayed graft function. And those get a little bit more prone to get in trouble down the road. So is there, is it, so the way I picture it, like both of us are in, this was myself and my son. Um, and so we're side by side on tables and you literally take the kidney out and put it in the other body. There's no prep that needs to happen? Well, well you, you, what happened is that we're having two separate rooms. Okay. Right. <laughs> oh, we don't get to be in the same room? No, no, okay. no, no. We, we, we usually move in with the donor. Uh, we doing them robotically nowadays. We used to do them open. Yeah. And uh, incision was between belly button and then pubic bone to the rib cage. Usually we take a rib out and that incision was very, very painful. Nowadays, in late 90s, we went to laparoscopically removing these kidneys. And these patients actually went home within 48 hours. Now some center doing them same day, send them home. And we could take kidney out either around belly button or for a young female, I'll make a little bikini incision, actually I'll retrieve it, so the scar would not be seen, to, uh, just for a guy, it doesn't matter. Oh, wow. Uh, a scar doesn't matter, but for a young female, maybe, that's why, how we do that. Okay. Uh, so when I take it out, my recipient could put it in. Okay. All right, so we have a caller for you. I'm sorry, what is the name again? Panda? Panda. Hi, oh hi, thank you yes. for calling. What is your question? <coughs> I'm calling, I, I'm a donor on my driver's license, and I wanted to know if that was enough to be a donor, or do I need to do more? I, th I, I think that's awesome to, to hear that you have uh, went uh, forward to actually declare you would want to be an organ donor, but what I suggest to you, always talk to your family and discuss with them your wishes. Uh, and and reason uh -huh. that if you tell your folks, nobody going to go against your will. On the other hand, if you just become an organ donor and the driver license, they may say, well, somebody must have pressured her, otherwise she would not be an organ donor because she never brought it up. But being an organ donor, your driver license, your organ can be recovered without any problem. So what are you trying to say? I need to talk to my family to let them know what I want about being a donor. Absolutely. I think it's very critical for you and others as well to talk about organ donation openly at home, on the dining table, when you're sitting together, family time. It's very important wow. because I promise you if I tell my wife or my children I want to be an organ donor, I don't think they will go against my wishes. They will honor my wish and they'll let them to do my organ recovery. Well, is there some kind of paper that you, doctors, uh, you know, that you had to fill out to let the doctors know? What will what happen is that uh, when 
person became an organ donor, the hospital would contact Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency here in Louisiana, and they would see that you are registered donor by looking at your driver license, and they will come in, and of course, we will talk to your relatives uh, and for them to give a consent to proceed with organ recovery. However, even if nobody give a consent, LOPA have the right to do organ recovery. However, we never want to put centers or organ procurement agency between family members and organ donation. So uh, it, at time, we had declined to, to recover those organs. That's why I'm saying it's very important for you to discuss it with your family. However, last five, seven years, we never encountered such a problem because the state does give LOPA a power to proceed with organ recovery because you are formally an organ donor as registered by signing in your driver license. And so also, Tupanda, I love this question because we can take it upon ourselves to just create a document and have it notarized whatever we need to do. As much documentation with our important papers and let our patient, our families know where that is to state that and make sure that that happens, right? Uh, absolutely, anything you can make, it, it'll go a long ways. But I think the point being, when you talk to the family, yeah. I'm very convinced no family would want to do go against your wishes. Besides, you think of it, family having such a horrible tragedy, Yes. at that tragic time, you're trying to make something good to come out of it. And what would be better to honor your loved one's wishes to be an organ donor to save others life. I'll give you a small example. Uh, I was at LSU in the early 90s. We have pediatric child and ventilator on dialysis needing liver transplant. Right across from that child, this young girl who was involved in a car wreck, brain dead. And Lopo approved him. They said, we will make her to be organ donor. Only six years of age. Oh, goodness. He, she was like a doll. And this other kid native of Nigeria who was legal residence and he really desperately needed an organ transplant. They say, we'll do it provided the liver would go to this other guy. They met each other in the uh, waiting area and uh, we did liver transplant. We did recovery and the liver transplant. That kid ended up graduating from high school, graduating from Grambling in computer science, and my understanding, he was recruited by university to help him in that department, and he took over that department. It's really a success story. I mean, so you see that uh, one family, so they lose their loved one. For God's sake, just help the other one not to lose their child, and it touched my heart. <laughs> uh, nothing like it. I'm sure. I'm sure it touches your heart so many of the stories that we do. Do we still, is Panda still there? Okay, I yes, hope that answers I'm the question. Oh, good. I, I really appreciate the information and I don't want to tie up the line. Well, thank you so much for your call. That was such a great question, and thank you for being a donor. I know that warms both of our hearts. And no, absolutely. We, we are very grateful uh, to all donors, to their families and their loved ones. Nothing could happen without their. Uh, generosity of giving organs to people to save lives. And again, you know, if I'm going to die and go away, why not let others take advantage of my organ? I'll tell you, uh, every year we have activities at Willis-Knighton with, uh, with help of LOPA to raise a donor flag and what have you. Uh, 
And I've had patients down our family, mom and dad, who would come and want to stand beside the recipient and feel their heart uh, pulsating and also listen to their breath because this is their child's mm -hmm. lung and heart. Uh, it's very touching and moving and whenever you see that, they know even though their loved one departed from this world, but in reality they continue to live mm -hmm. by giving life to the others. I just can't imagine how touching that is to be right. in the same vicinity of seeing that happen. That's right. We have uh, Mike on the line. Hi, Mike. Thanks for calling. What's your question? Good afternoon. Um, this is such a blessing and an honor to have Dr. Zabari on because he was my transplantation surgeon. Uh, I am a recipient, and not only I, but I call my brother from another mother. We both were perfect matches for my donor. Uh, who passed away, and he was our surgeon. It was such a miraculous thing. Rick Rowe even did a story on us oh. at HBS.com. And it was six years this past April, Dr. Zabari, that you planted, transplanted our kidneys for us. It was Mike Patterson and Greg Waldrop. And to see you there talking about loafer and kidney donations, organ donations, this is such a blessing. I'm so honored. The, oh, the honor is all mine. Uh, what really make us keep going, getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, getting in a small airplane, flying out to bring organ back, it's just when we see somebody like you to become productive, to get back to your community, to join your family, to see those children grow up and excel and succeed. Uh, it's always why we push for organ donation to save people's lives like yourself. So thank you for calling, and we are very proud of you for taking such a good thank care you. of those organs as well as yourself. Yes, yes, we are taking great care. And I'm working with Loper with them all the time now, talking about uh, organ donation. So I'm just so proud of you, so glad to hear you on, and kept talking to people about organ donations. Thank you. Keep, keep up good work. That's exactly who we need, uh, soldiers like yourself. Thank you, sir. Bye. Goodbye, Mike. Thank you so much for your call. What a wonderful story. That's right. To start this out, it must just, again, warm your heart to see, to hear about Mike and his family. And now six years? That's I mean, right. There are people in this community who do not know that organ transplantation are done in Shreveport. That's yeah. why really this kind of program, it would promote organ donation. Also, they will know that there are people here in Shreveport who need this organ. The other side of it, we never really advertise, but you could actually m tell them that organs should not leave the community, should be given to recipient in this community. If a donor pass away, become an organ donor, they could say, hey, we want this organ to go to stay locally. Or if you have a close friend live far away, you could actually request that organ to be donated to that friend who is in dialysis or in liver failure. Uh, we had a recipient here. His daughter was a cadet, and one of her classmates in skiing involved an accident. Mm. He passed away, unfortunately, at a very young age and that family made a kidney donation to come to her dad right here in Shreveport. And we ended up transplanting and he's still kicking and doing well from that kidney. Still kicking and That's doing right. well. That's exactly right. Another miracle. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's amazing how pinpoint and direct you can do it and see the life being saved with Absol that choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, we have Tara on the line for you. Hi Tara, thanks for calling. <laughs> What's your question? Um, hi, I, I'm, I'm wondering if um, ethics 
in any way plays a part in this organ donation. I, I guess what my question really is, like, would an alcoholic be able to get a, a liver? It is, if he has cirrhosis of the liver due to alcoholism? It is a very important and good question. Uh, we don't give no organ to anybody who's actively drinking. It's a process. Mm -hmm. They had to go through it. Uh, we have social workers, we have psychiatrists, we have rehabilitation program. And the patient really have to fulfill all their obligation, have to be abstinent. You know, we used to call patient to go to ER, three, like uh, Saturday morning, Sunday night, the different time to check alcohol level. Nowadays, we can do a blood test. We could find out if you have any alcohol period last three months. So we are very vigilant, not to let that happen, but those who actually realize they done themselves so much damage and have good family support, and we know that they would guard those organs with their life and support themselves, then the, the committee would review and decide whether or not this would be an acceptable recipient or not, and those who seem to be an acceptable recipient will list them, while others, we know that they not uh, do very well because they have not given up drinking or they go back to drinking. I published in that actually when I was a fellow at Hopkins in early 90s, one of my first publications, I looked at 44, 45 patients who were alcoholic and underwent liver transplantation. And what we find out that people who had DWI, people who were going through the divorce process, people who have been close friends around them active drinking. When you have those three in them, risk of re going back to dr drinking it was very, very high. So we learned over the years as a transplant community, mm -hmm. we don't want to waste an organ to give it to somebody who is going to trash it. Because we know every day there are people dying for these organs. Uh, uh, you know, when you realize you made a mistake, you rectify, you take care of yourself, then we will consider them. Otherwise, we will not transplant anybody who's actively drinking. Does that answer your question, well, thank Tara? Thank you so much. Yes, it does. I love your show. Thanks so yes, much. Thank Bye -bye. you so much for watching and for calling. And I love that because it, it does spur some, a lot of thoughts are going through my head, too. There's, it's not, I think it's important for people to understand, because I've heard this before, it's not a judgment uh, on you for the habit that you have. It's just a really practical choice to, that this is to extend someone's life, to save a life. And if you have this disease and you cannot stop drinking or you haven't, then that's a whole separate issue. So it's not a judgment, it's just because it's just not the right place for this, this organ. How long does someone have to be sober? Is there a, a specific time period? So if someone does have that and they do, they consciously want to stop, just because they have this problem now doesn't mean it's going to follow them forever. If they get sober, how long do they have to be sober? We, we recommend and believe that they should be sober for a period of six months. There are those institutions and centers who say in three months or needed, uh, but we do believe that the longer they are and when they come back to clinic, see, they get sick. Mm. We get to see these people very often. We know how they behave, how they act. We know what kind of social support they have. They go to a group meeting, they bring paper back, and it's really easy, even a, a simple individual, to say this guy is committed or not. Mm -hmm. And those who are not committed will declare themselves. They would not come back to clinic, they would not go to a group, 
and you check drug or alcohol level, you see it actually back detected. So we, we watch them very, very carefully because we do know there are people who are dying for this organ, as we said before. It's nothing like when a recipient takes good care of themselves and the organ they have, at least to honor the donor and donor family. And us too, you know, we're flying out in bad weather. In all honesty, it's not uncommon for us that we're not sure if we can safely learn. Right. And trying to save one life. And if that person is not going to take care of that organ, it's as painful to me and to my team than donor family and the transplant community. And is it also safe to say, just not to simplify it all, but just to say, actually, there's bigger things going on in your life if you're an alcoholic and still using this, that this liver isn't going to save your life. That's it could exactly be right. just a futile operation. This isn't what you need when this could save someone else's life. You, you know, you, you'll be uh, in a deal, I would say, butchering up a patient. Mm -hmm. I used to tell patients, when you come to see me, you may be a Cadillac. By the time I get done, you're going to become a Mercedes. Some reason, liver transplant used to be incision and the rib cage mm. and midline up just like a Mercedes sign. Why would you subject a human being to such a big operation, a costly operation, and take an organ away from somebody else, knowing that if you do not stop, this organ will be failed like the one you c destroy the other one. That's why it's, it's not easy for us. No. Because now God-like, we like to save everyone's life. But at the same time, if I know I can help them, I don't think we should waste an organ on that person. Right. It's really a kindness. Well, that's I'm not right. going to do this to your body when this is not what you need. It's that's not that's you. exactly right. Yeah. So when we talk about um, renal transplants, when and where was the first successful one? How long have we been doing this successfully? You, you know, if you look at the field of interstage renal disease as a whole and first kidney transplant, it was actually German scientists during World War II oh. who developed dialysis machine and after the war ended some of those scientists landed in this side of Atlantic and in Boston that's where they start doing hemodialysis. The problem was access. They were having these tubes in artery and vein and, and leg, before you know it, old sight kind of vanished away. It was successful for military, wounded military, acute, to allow the kidney to recover, but for long term, it was not. And uh, have the scientist who was actually doing skin graft in identical twin mice, and he realized those skin graft did not fail. But if he got skin from different animals put over, they would slough off and die away. Oh. So at, in Boston, they found this identical twin who took one kidney out of one and put it in the other one. That's how they realized body would accept from a living relative, especially identical twin, because those days we did not have good immunosuppression. So the first successful kidney actually happened some 70 years ago in 1954. In the 50s, that's what I was going to uh, say. 54 in Boston, that's right. And in 63, kidney pancreas was done. In 66, first successful liver transplant done. But really none of this materialized very well because of risk of rejection was so bad until early 80s when cyclosporin became available. Right. Then suddenly field of transplantation became uh, very, very successful. Very successful, That's just right. like just. That's right. Yeah, and 
Uh, now, was it also a, a, a big jump to, did we already know that someone could live with just one kidney? Was that a big risk too? How, what proof did we have that we don't need both kidneys or did we already know that? Uh, you, you know, by the way the body works. You, you know, the other things uh, I've seen in bulletin uh, <laughs> in Baltimore that says, God gave you two kidneys so that you could donate one. Oh, I love uh, that. And, and, and reason that, uh, John McDonald, our mentor, professor, chancellor, who first started the first kidney transplant in the northern part of the state in 1978. We sue his patients 40 years later with one kidney still kicking. So yes, you can live with one kidney. We have trauma victims who one kidney been taken out, the other kidney. We have patients with tumor and kidney. We take him out, the other kidney can sustain. So we had enough knowledge about it that pay people do live with one kidney. And of course, we are very vigilant. We do not take any chances taking a kidney out of you if you are not sure you're going to do extremely well. Otherwise, if you end up on dialysis, we haven't gained, made any gains, right? right? That's why we are very vigilant, but no matter what you do, it's nothing perfect. If you have two kidney versus one, if you have an intrinsic disease like developed diabetes or hypertension or some other underlying problem, two kidney would only del delay dialysis for one year versus one kidney. That's why we are very careful about who should be an organ donor. And the other thing, federal government actually have made a policy that if you were an organ donor and you, you end up in dialysis, they put you right on top of list for another kidney. Oh. That's wonderful. That's right. Yeah. It's the only right thing to do, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. So it must be pretty, is, is it really extensive? I mean, there's not only criteria to meet, but what, what does a donor go through to make sure first that they can do without their kidney? Well, it's very vigilant. We have uh, transplant nephrologists. Uh, we have dietitian. We have social workers. Uh, we have technology to assess and evaluate, to check for creatinine clearance, to check blood tests, uh, to look at anatomy. We do all of that very, very carefully. Uh, for example, uh, you have to be 18 years of age mm -hmm. in order to be an organ donor. You should have no malignancy. You shouldn't be diabetic. You shouldn't be taking three, four blood pressure medicine and what have you. You shouldn't be extremely morbid obese like BMI 40 or 45, things like that. But we will look at them and evaluate them. And sometimes, unfortunately, you know, when we work them up, uh, they are not good quality candidate and they will kidney donation. That must be terribly disappointing. Well, it is. And, and, but again, at least the person came forward trying to do the right thing. Yes. Uh, and uh, we, that's why we don't say no. We evaluate them and do them. But at the same time, I have to treat them the way I want to be treated. We wouldn't do it any other way. Yes. So why are the waiting lists so long? What's the disparity? You know, the, there's significant disparity of organ and demands and supplies. And it really has been very difficult for us as a nation. We know there are some organs are not being, they, they do not donate. Uh, public education not been really good. At least, at least from data we know, 25% of potential donors were never really given option of organ donation to those family. Mm -hmm. Even though you know we have very effective organ procurement agency in the state, but if they don't get called by 
hospital and whoever, sometime locals will make a decision, well, this would not be a good donor. Uh, you, you know, we, we have taken livers out of 70-year-old, and you're looking at liver, it looked like a good quality liver for somebody to make that decision, or somebody had a little infection, or having cancer, you know, 20 years ago, a little skin cancer would not be a candidate, they wouldn't call. So I think th that's one, uh, there are people sometimes not being approached. There are families who probably would consider to be an organ donor, they do not get approached uh, for it. Uh, so the disease, uh, the disease donors is, is uh, basically a problem because we don't have adequate organ to recover. And we have not done a great job to recruit more living donors to be helping their loved one. So education, opportunity, Absolutely. I think that uh, church leaders in the community, CEO of the companies, I think uh, programming in high middle school, high school, colleges to get this involved and engaged, I do believe will enhance uh, quite a bit to get more organ recovered. I know that in my mind. Okay. Dr. Zavari, what would you, we have about a minute left, what would you like to leave our viewers with? Well, you know what, I would tell them that uh, not, none of this could happen without donor and donor families. We are indebted to them. By all means, they have done an outstanding job to save lives and uh, out of such a horrible tragedy to become an organ donor and help people out. So please, please put in your driver's license when you <laughs> renew to be an organ donor. Talk to your family, tell them you wish to be an organ donor and approach your friends and colleagues, discussing it openly. That would be God's blessing. God's blessing. Thank you. Well, you're certainly a blessing, too. Thank you, Dr. Zavari. This you. has been so educational and so nice to have you here. I hope you'll come back again and talk to us. My, my honor. And thank, thank you, you so much for joining us for Healthline 3 today. We'll see you next time.